This is exactly right. Forgive me for interrupting. I'm Bridger Weiniger, host of I Said No Gifts on Exactly Right. Each week, I invite my favorite people in comedy over to chat, and they always bring a gift. We're coming up on our 200th episode, and every episode is a gem. I have welcomed all kinds of great guests, including Cola Scola, Bowen Yang, Robbie Hoffman. It goes on and on and on. And you don't want to miss the 200th episode with the great Maria Bamford. What does she bring me? Find out April 25th. New episodes every Thursday. Follow I Said No Gifts wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. It did get very violent in a personal way. The Hatfield-McCoy feud is especially fascinating because the passions were raised over a lot of different disagreements, love stories. Because they were so intermingled, the complexities of human nature are very apparent and fun to explore in some ways. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom. And they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories. And now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. I love a good family feud story, and you really can't beat the tale of the Hatfields and the McCoys. But there's so much more to this story than you think. Author Dean King tells us about who they were, why they hated each other, and why the feud ended. All from his new book called The Feud, The Hatfields and McCoys, The True Story. You know, really, this is one of America's founding stories. It says so much about the American character. That's something that I discovered as I was researching the book. I knew it was a fascinating story with incredible characters in this beautiful and sometimes angry part of the country. I didn't really fully understand how much it said about us until I really got steeped in it and went there and met the people and studied the history more. I think, one, it tells us a lot about what it means to be an American. I think it tells us a lot about human nature in a place where law and order is not a given. And I think it tells us a lot about the complexity of a story and what history might do to it over time. It's gotten streamlined and, you know, it's become a caricature of itself. It's made it into cartoons and common vernacular. But when you really unravel it again and go back and look at the details and the human beings involved, it's all the more fascinating. What is the reaction generally you get when you have said to people, I've written a book about the Hatfields and the McCoys? Are they kind of like, we've heard this story before? You might get some eye rolls, a bunch of country bumpkins, toothless moonshine and hillbillies. and Killing each other. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, that's the stereotype. In some ways, it couldn't be further from the truth. It's a real disservice to these people. The people who live in West Virginia and Kentucky, in these parts of West Virginia and Kentucky, take it very seriously to this day. And it's important that we not marginalize them by accepting these sometimes ridiculous caricatures of these people. Give me an overview. Are we talking about a feud that lasts several hundred years that starts a little pre-Civil War? And how many people are dead? Is there like an epicenter? How do you look at it globally? It lasted for me about 
three decades, from the Civil War, the killing of Harmon McCoy, to 1890, when one Hatfield was scapegoated for all the violence and hung in Pikeville. And those bookend the feud, you can go on because there were some more arrests after that. And there's some more family stories about what the Hatfields were doing and the McCoys were doing. And that 1890 hanging of a Hatfield pretty much ended the direct confrontations between the Hatfields and McCoys. Where does the story begin for you? Yeah, it really goes back to the the founding of the nation in some ways. But I, I would say the Civil War is, for me, where the feud really ignited. So you had Hatfields and McCoys moving into this remote part of what was Virginia and then Kentucky. After the Revolutionary War, soldiers were rewarded with property, often on the frontier, where they could go and set up a farm. And of course, because there were soldiers, they could fend for themselves. And, and often they were fighting the Native American tribes that were already there. These two families got there and really they intermarried. They were business partners. They were close in a lot of ways. They were like any kind of people. They had their ups and downs, but they were in the Tug River Valley, which is on the border today of Kentucky and West Virginia, Southern West Virginia. Because they became split by the Kentucky-Virginia line, it was an unnatural division. It ran right down the middle of that river valley. And in 1849, Hatfields and McCoys together petitioned the state of Virginia and said, hey, look, we're one community. We should be in one state. Can you make this all part of Virginia? And I believe that if that, in fact, had happened, there never would have been a Hatfield-McCoy feud. Wow. It didn't happen. So they ended up on opposite sides during the Civil War. Okay, I might need a little history reminder here. The politics are a little complicated there. When the Civil War broke out, Kentucky was neutral at first, and it would go Union. This part of Virginia would secede from Virginia in 1863 and go with the Union. But that part of West Virginia, the southern part, were very much allied with the Confederacy, and and those guys were loyal to the Confederacy to the end. It's a little confusing. Tell me which family went with which group then in the war. It would be fun to be able to go, boom, you know, very simple divisions here. But what happened really wasn't the McCoys were in Kentucky and they were Union and the and the Hatfields were in Virginia and they became Confederates. All the Hatfields and McCoys in Virginia went with the Confederacy. All the Hatfields and McCoys in Kentucky pretty much went with the Union. Now, there were some important exceptions to that. Randall McCoy, who would be the patriarch of the McCoy family in the feud, lived in Kentucky But his allegiance was with the Confederacy. And he fought side by side with Mr. Hatfield before their infamous feud broke out. And then there was one particular McCoy, Harmon McCoy, the brother of Randall, who was in Kentucky and fought for the Union. And he was what the feud broke out over because there was so much anger along this border. There was raiding back and forth. And, you know, maybe on a typical border on a war, you don't have personal feelings. But here you had one community and everybody knew each other on the other side. If you went over and raided on one side and and took somebody's cows or their horses or or whatever, as opposed to an act of war, it was more like thievery to them. You knew these people who were taking your animals and it wasn't fair and it created bitter anger, inner family rivalries. Sometimes you had Hatfields defending McCoys and McCoys defending Hatfields just because they were on opposite sides. So it's very complex. 
And boy, that's certainly not the way that it's drawn in history, just popular culture. It really does seem like it is one family against the other. It sounds like to me, we discount how intermingled they really were, and that made it so much more complicated. We do. And I think it was part of the fuel that made this fire so hot, as well as that when you are intermarried and you are family, when those divisions are created, they're all the more angry because you have these close relationships. Even today, when I was there, you will meet Hatfields and McCoys who are marrying again, and you will meet Hatfields and McCoys who are still angry at at the other family and who are still really studying this history and arguing over the points of the history. So we talked a little bit about the intermingling of the families and where they are located geographically. What is everybody doing for a living? I mean, what is life like, let's say pre-Civil War at this point, pre-major controversy at this point? What is it like to be a Hatfield or a McCoy? Well, it's very rugged territory. The Appalachian Mountains are, are the oldest mountains, very convoluted, isolated. As the country sort of moved west, that pocket of Appalachia was kind of left behind in some ways, but it was kind of hard scrabble farming. It was tough to make a living there, but they were tough people, extremely self-reliant. They made their own whiskey. I mean, moonshine at the time was, this wasn't an illicit thing. It was a medicine. It was something that they brought with them from Scotland and from the old world that was very important to their way of life. So when a tax was slapped on it and they were told that they couldn't do it, it was like saying you couldn't grow your own corn. They hunted for a living. They would use the coal to to heat their homes. The nation started seeing value to that part of Appalachia because of its timber resources and its coal resources. And corporations started looking at it with hungry eyes. Who are the major players here? Describe them for me, how this whole thing starts, the legend of this feud between these two families. You have Devil Ants Hatfield's family on one side and Randall McCoy's family on the other side. 16 kids on one, 13 on the other. Big families, sprawling families, lots of aunts and uncles, families that also would have to spread out because there were limited resources. They needed to keep moving and trying to grow to sustain themselves. They were not educated in school often, but They were very sharp, witty people. They lived in the countryside. In West Virginia, you would go to Logan, the county seat. In in Pike County, Kentucky, you would go to Pikeville, the, the county seat there. And they had connections. Because they had big families, they controlled the politics in the area. And so the state politicians had to heed their control and take care of them in some ways because they could deliver the vote on election day. And on election days, they would come down out of the hills. They would wear their finest clothes. They would bring their best food, jugs of moonshine. This was a social time. It was a time they courted. It was time they they did business and learned the news of the area. What's the first major incident here? Historians argue over every point of the feud uh, from the (laughs) beginning to the end. But we're going to believe you. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) there were several different incidents that created the feud. And, And the first was right at the end of the Civil War. Let's start then with the murder of Herman McCoy. All during the war, because the border, there's a river there, but it, but it was also fuzzy because you had Hatfields and McCoys, you know, on either side, and you had home guards that were raiding back and forth. Devil Ants lived in the woods. He would work his farm during the day when he wasn't out fighting because they had to grow food to sustain their families. Yet he knew that it was possible that there might be a nighttime raid. And so he would go out and camp out in the woods. And the same thing was happening on the Kentucky side. 
his house was raided and burned down and his wife and son were thrown out. And you can imagine the bitterness that creates. And so there were raids back and forth. By the time the war was concluding, it was not concluding for these people because they had pent up anger, grudges, and scores to settle. Uh, Future President Garfield was a Union commander who sort of controlled Kentucky early on. And as he was leaving, one of his officers said, this thing's going to go on a long time after the war. They already knew it. Harmon McCoy was one of the steadfast Union fighters in the McCoy family. There were a couple steadfast Confederate fighters, uncles of Devil Ants. And so at the end of the war, it wasn't over. <laughs> and when Harmon came back, poor guy, he had been wounded several times during the war. He really just wanted to get back to his family. But the Hatfields weren't done yet. They came over and raided. They took pot shots at him. He headed out and hid in the cave for a while. Eventually, they tracked him down and executed him. Again, some historians say this didn't begin the feud because Randall didn't avenge it right away. It's possible and even probable that Randall was in a Union prison at the time, though there's not proof of that. And that might have been one reason why he didn't avenge it right away. But it will turn out that Harmon McCoy's sons are later in a raiding party that goes over to hunt Hatfields later in the feud. So it's clearly part of the feud. Not much happened until Randall McCoy's hog went missing and he found it in a Hatfield hog pen. You know, it's easy to sort of laugh at a hog creating a feud from our perspective today. But back then, when you were living very much hand to mouth, farming your own food, the slaughter of a hog in the fall was what got you through the winter. And it was extremely important. If you didn't have your hog, you'd have a hard, tough winter. And so it wasn't something to be scoffed at, this dispute over Randall's hog. So he found it in Floyd Hatfield's hog pen. Randall accused him of, of stealing the hog, and they ended up going to a, a trial there. The justice of the peace was Anderson Hatfield, preacher Ants Hatfield. Preacher Ants was in Kentucky, and he was a wise man. He knew that this was going to be problematic, a Hatfield McCoy going to court. So as his jurors, he picked six McCoys and six Hatfields. And uh, <laughs> so he couldn't be accused of favoritism. So there just weren't enough independent jurors? Is that what happened? Well, you have these two powerful families. Imagine if you weren't a Hatfield McCoy and were sitting on that jury. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't work out for you either way. So it was all Hatfields and McCoys. And Preacher Ants was a very respected guy. They all came fully armed and he made everybody put their weapons aside. He gave them a stern talking to and said, don't take family sides. Let's decide this right. One man testified that he had seen Floyd mark this hog himself. They had markings. They branded them by clipping their ears. And then they let them go. This is how this happened. They would let the hogs go through most of the year. The hogs would feed in the woods off the mast, the acorns and things. And then when it came time to bring their hogs in in the fall, they would go out and collect them. So my understanding is that the tag would get kind of crunched up so you couldn't read the owner's name. You know, Randall said it was his and Floyd said, this is my hog. And so you have Bill Staten testifying, though he's married to a McCoy, testifying for Floyd. And then in the trial, you have Selkirk McCoy siding with Floyd Hatfield. Now, he was a McCoy, but he worked on Devil Ants' timber crew. Oh, gosh. So here again, yeah. You know, it's you need a, a map. It, I mean, this is <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how you can recall all of these names. It, it's It's very complicated. 
What kind of reputation does each family have as far as temperament goes? Uh, the McCoys were known for having this very fiery temperament. More than the Hatfields? More so than the Hatfields, and you find it even today. The McCoys are very detail-oriented, more type A, I would say. And the Hatfields are more laid back. Uh, now, you're going to find exceptions. But in general, as I was researching, that's what I found. The Hatfields were a, a lot of fun to, to hang out with, sit around the campfire, play music, maybe sip some of the moonshine that's floating around today that they're still good at making. And oh. and the, the McCoys were maybe more on top of their details. Both sides, very sharp and, and interesting folks. But Randall was very upset by the outcome of this. Because the case involving the hog didn't turn out in the McCoys' favor. You know, within two years, two nephews of his would murder Bill Staten's son. So two McCoys would murder the son of the man who testified on behalf of the Hatfields. Yes. These two McCoys would go into hiding. They would eventually come out of hiding. They would be tried again by Hatfield and let off, you know, on the basis of self-defense. Huh. So this is a lot more complicated than just the Hatfields versus the McCoys. When you step back and look at it from a long time ago and want to simplify everything and make it very black and white, it's just not that way. Do you think part of that is the stereotype of the country person in the mountains? This is how they settle their disputes. I do. I think we're fascinated with that stereotype. Different nations certainly were trying to define America. What makes America different? Who are they? This was a stereotype that really fit the narrative they wanted to tell. New York City, the big newspapers, when they saw one particular event where there was a midnight raid and a, a house burning and a woman was killed in the battle, and it really crossed the lines of, of men fighting over power, they saw that it would be an explosive thing for the newspapers. It occurred at the exact same time that Jack the Ripper was doing his thing in England, and you will see in international papers dueling headlines of the Hatfields and McCoys and Jack the Ripper. Three newspapers in New York City sent down ace reporters. And so they went in to get the stories and, and did a lot of reporting. In a lot of ways, the best reporting that was done on the feud in our best record of the feud, yet it's refuted and rejected by the locals because they were from the city and they were condescending and they did look down on the people and they wrote some pretty harsh things. So let me catch us up. Harmon McCoy is killed by the Hatfields, and then Randall McCoy accuses the Hatfields of stealing his hog, but he loses that case in court. There's simmering anger there. We talked about the election days when people came from their homes and socialized. The next thing that spurred the feud on was an election day where Devil Ants' son, Johnsey, who was kind of a, a ladies' man, came to Kentucky for the 1880 election and saw Randall McCoy's daughter there and immediately fell in love with her. Uh-oh. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has all of that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. 
There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. We're talking with author Dean King about the Hatfields and the McCoys. A young Hatfield and a young McCoy have fallen in love, and obviously this can't end very well. As the day wore on and the the moonshine was passed back and forth, Johnsy and Roseanne McCoy went back into West Virginia. Johnsy was still living at the Hatfield home and moved into the Hatfield home. Of course, they're not married. This is an affront to the McCoy family. The McCoys get immediately incensed and very angry. Rosanna's uh, brothers are offended. Johnson wants to marry Rosanna, but Randall McCoy refuses to let that happen. Devil Ants is kind of enjoying this maybe and not encouraging Rosanna to go home. And so this carries on for a while until Randall sends a messenger saying, I'm coming I'm going to put together an army, basically, and come and take you back if you don't come back to his daughter. And so at that point, she decides she has to go back. She doesn't want to start this war between the families. It's not a clean division. Johnsy's going to go back across the border and try to continue to court her. She ends up pregnant. The brothers are angry. She has to move out of the house with an aunt, Aunt Betty, whose house today is really the central McCoy homestead monument to the feud. It's still owned by McCoys. The McCoys gather there on their family reunions. Her grave is there. The grave of their child, her child with Jauncey is there. And that occurs. Her brothers find out that Jauncey's coming across the river and courting her at Aunt Betty's. They come up and they catch him. And Jauncey's kind of a notorious bootlegger. He sells Devil Ants' whiskey on both sides of the river. And he carries concealed weapons. And there are all kinds of warrants out for his arrest. So they do a citizen's arrest, and they're going to take him to Pikeville to have him tried. Rosanna hears about this, and one of the most famous moments of the feud is when she leaves in the middle of the night and goes to the other side of the river and alerts Devil Ants because she's afraid that her brothers are actually going to kill Johnsy and he's never going to make it to Pikeville. Devil Ants gets some men. They come across the river. They catch the brothers with Jauncey, and they take Jauncey back. And here, Rosanna has betrayed her family and created more enmity among them. And again, there's no resolution. She doesn't go back and marry into the Hatfield family. In fact, Jauncey is going to marry a cousin of hers. Well, how was that allowed to happen, though? Well, here again, you have very complex, widespread families, sometimes very loyal to one another, sometimes looking after themselves. You've got younger generations who don't always listen to their parents. And you have an older generation that while there's anger, they're more reasonable in some ways. The younger generation is more likely to pick up a gun and shoot at each other, a little more violent. And to make matters more complicated, Nancy was Harmon McCoy's daughter. (laughs) The Harmon McCoy murdered by the Hatfields. 
So she didn't have a father to say, don't do that. And, and in fact, one of her brothers said, John C. wasn't responsible for that. Go ahead, you can marry in. Because also the Hatfields were pretty powerful mm -hmm. in that area. They had a decent amount of wealth in that area. And Harmon McCoy's family was destitute from having their father die. And so this was a way to escape that poverty. Were Devil Ants Hatfield and Randall McCoy ever friends or close or, or anything, just men who respected each other? They were. They fought together in the war. They together went and raided one of the Union Home Guard leaders' farms and, and actually killed that man. But they did that together. And, and it's kind of shocking to see that. And it turns out Randall McCoy's son, Big Jim, actually worked in Devil Ants' moonshining operation. The other interesting thing is that Devil Ants is present at almost none of the big flashpoint moments of the feud. So while he's the patriarch sort of sitting back and maybe the puppet master, he's generally not there when a big event unfolds. So it's very mysterious and, and complex again. This seems like a good time to talk about the honor code of the 1800s, I'm sure particularly in Virginia. What was that even about and how is it different than how we resolve conflicts today, do you think? Back then, no law enforcement would come into these areas. People were heavily armed. They had to be. They used their arms for hunting and, and live that way, but also to defend themselves. If something happened to your family, you probably weren't going to be able to go to the city, get a sheriff to come to your area and accomplish anything. Particularly, nobody's going to come into the Hatfields area because there are lots of Hatfields there. They're all going to stick up for one another. Same with the McCoys. And so they fended for themselves first. They would go to the law, if it was a dispute, you know, there were deeds, they understood all this kind of thing, and they would use the court of law if they could. But, but if it were a closer family matter, and you'll see this when we go a little bit deeper into some of the feud actions, the next one in particular, that they sometimes had to take the law into their own hands. Back then, if somebody was convicted for murder and put in prison, I think a typical life sentence was about seven years. That's about how long you could expect that person to be in prison. Well, if that person killed your brother or your son, yeah. do you want to let them go to trial in another state and maybe get put into prison there for seven years? Does that right the situation for you? On the other hand, they were practical people as well. There were cases where people would move in together who weren't yet married because the preachers were on circuits there and they would might have to wait until the following spring or summer to get a preacher there to marry them. So they weren't so rigid that they couldn't bend to some of the practicalities of that life. But there was family honor if somebody ran off with one of your sisters or daughters, that kind of thing, and didn't honor that situation with marriage and a commitment. People might fight with guns and shoot at each other. And in a way, it was like a, a duel. As long as you fought the duel, your honor was satisfied because you showed courage. You showed that you st you were going to stand up for what you thought was right and for your family. The result didn't matter so much. And if you didn't hit each other, you could then shake hands and go, hey, that's God's will. So let me see if I can summarize where we are up till now. So geography and the Civil War divide these intermingling families, right? And after the Civil War, the Hatfields track down Harmon McCoy and kill him, which we think might have started at least some really bad feelings between the two families that were already simmering. Then there's the Hogg incident with the Hatfields and McCoys. And then Roxana and John C. are no longer together, but it has caused a lot of feelings of disrespect 
expect, particularly from the McCoys towards the Hatfields? Is that kind of where we are right now? Yes. Good summary. What year are we in and what is the next big event? Okay, so that that brings us up to 1878 and in 1880, again at election day. Everybody comes together in Kentucky, not even a contentious election. They pretty much know who's going to get elected sheriff and they come together, but a, a dispute breaks out. And it's quite possible that Randall's sons, namely Tolbert, his oldest son, were still angry over the Rosanna situation and sort of out for blood. Tolbert ends up in a dispute with a bad Lias Hatfield, you know, over uh, uh, the sale of a banjo and an unpaid debt. There's a bad Lias and there's a good Lias. There's good Lias who's Devil Lance's brother and there's bad Lias on the Kentucky side. Bad Lias is kind of thumped by Tolbert. He's not a strong guy. There's Ellison Hatfield who has come over from the West Virginia side. Ellison's just there to socialize. He was the Confederate hero from the Hatfield family. So he was a revered warrior, but he was a deacon in the church, very respected man. He gets roused when he hears about the fight and he goes over and basically says, Tolbert, stop picking on him, pick on somebody your own size. Well, he's a lot bigger than Tolbert and Tolbert's all fired up and angry. And he says, don't you butt in. And the two of them start getting into it. Ellison's, even though he's been drinking a lot, is is a more powerful guy. Tolbert's got a knife and pulls his knife. He stabs Ellison. They get into a real tussle. The knife's going back and forth. And then Tolbert's two brothers, Farmer and Bud, get involved. So more McCoys. More McCoys. Yeah, three McCoys versus one Hatfield. And uh, everybody else is circled up. Preacher Ants Hatfield is there. He's already tried to defuse the fight. He's tried his best to say, you guys, you know, no, we don't want this. Separate. Don't do this. But it didn't work. And the knife's flying. It's dangerous. And pretty soon they're rolling around on the ground. Ellison ends up getting stabbed 27 times by the brothers and Tolbert. So Ellison Hatfield has been killed by the McCoys. At one point, even though he's hurting really badly, he picks up a stone and he's getting ready to hit Tolbert with it. And Farmer McCoy shoots him, shoots him in the back. Ellison somehow manages to stay alive. He can't fight anymore. Well, so he's been stabbed 27 times and shot in the back. Yeah, yes. Yeah, and, and and drunk a lot of moonshine. Oh, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so now good Lias Hatfield, who's also there, gets Ellison, gets some of his other Hatfield guys, and, and they take Ellison back over to West Virginia. They take him to a family home, they get a doctor, and they start treating him, and they hope for the best. They hope he's going to survive. In the meantime, the McCoy brothers are arrested, of course, by Hatfield constables on the Kentucky side. Mm-hmm. So you have Hatfields who've arrested these McCoys. Still, Devil Ants, who wasn't there, who's told what's happened. Ellison, you know, one of his favorite brothers in this hero, is basically on his deathbed. Devil Ants gets together a posse of men and he says, No, those guys are not going to go to Pikeville to be tried. And he goes across the river that night, finds the constables who have the brothers, and they take control of them. And they take them back to West Virginia. And Devil Ant says, if my brother survives, these guys can go to Kentucky for their trial. But if he dies, they're going to be tried in West Virginia. You got your family honor, just a typical moment in a feud, a blood feud. He's not going to let somebody else decide this matter if his brother dies. 
So they put the three brothers in a sort of a dilapidated schoolhouse and all these Hatfields are there standing guard over them. So the dying man is Devil Ansel Hatfield's brother. And some of the men who attacked him are Randall McCoy's sons. Randall McCoy has gone to Pikeville to try to get real law enforcement from Pikeville involved and to see his cousin, Perry Klein, who's an attorney there who has some power in Pikeville and some sway. In the meantime, Ellison is fading. Tolbert's wife and child and Tolbert's mother and, and the mother of the other boys, they come over and plead for the lives of these boys and begging, you know, on their knees for Devil Ants to do everything by the book. And Devil Ants, again, and his brother, Wall Hatfield, say, look, if Ellison lives, we'll let the boys go to Pikeville. If Ellison doesn't live, we'll try them here. And that's the way it's going to be. It doesn't really matter what you say. In the end, Ellison dies within a couple of days. The Hatfields hold their summary trial, and it's pretty clear what the outcome of that trial is going to be, guilty. You know, you have an army of Hatfields here. They're just kind of stuck. The boy's mother even begs some of the other brothers, please don't interfere. I still hope that Devil Ants will do the right thing. Don't, because she doesn't want to lose all her boys. She knows what will happen. What the Hatfields do is they take the boys back into Kentucky. They tie them to pawpaw trees. What is this? A uh, pawpaw tree is a local um, fruit-bearing tree. Okay. They tie them to the tree and they execute them by firing squad. Wow. They then go back into West Virginia. And now by crossing the state line, the Hatfields actually did something kind of clever. These murders or this carrying out of justice has happened in Kentucky. So they didn't commit a crime in West Virginia. But there's no kind of extradition treaties. There's no agreements between states. If Kentucky's not going to go to the governor of West Virginia and say, hey, we want these Hatfields, they committed a murder over here, and get them back. Because the governor needs votes. It does him no good to send Hatfields over to Kentucky for a trial. So they stay out of it. The government stays out of it, I assume. Yeah, they're going to stay out of it. No Kentucky law enforcement can go into West Virginia and extract them. One, they would come out alive. Two, it would be illegal. The Hatfields have taken care of this situation in a way that, that there's going to be no easy resolution. And so for a, a number of years, there isn't. The Hatfields don't go into Kentucky and the McCoys don't go into West Virginia because they know that either they'll be arrested or killed. They have created an incendiary and upsetting situation, one that's not going to be brushed under the rug this time. So this happened in 1880, is that right? Yes, Yes. So how long do we go before we see another Hatfield-McCoy conflict? Yeah, about five years. But in the meantime, Randall is not going to let go of this. He's going to his relative Perry Klein in Pikeville, who is going to help get a governor in Kentucky elected and have some chits and get a price put on the head of these Hatfields. Wow. Hoping to raise the ante here and get some bounty hunters going. That's smart. Yeah. And so the Hatfields get wind of this. And they start getting nervous. They decide that to resolve this, they need to get rid of Randall McCoy. Who is the patriarch and the moral center of this entire family? That was a very unlikely outcome, but that was the reasoning they came up with, was that we need to kill Randall because he's the one who's trying to get Perry Klein to get these bounty hunters to come get us. Right. On New Year's Eve in 1887, a Hatfield party goes over and raids Randall McCoy's house. Well, they go over that night, 
but it turns out there's an issue, there's a barking dog, and, and they feel like it's not the right moment. They go back, and they come back the next day, and they raid the house at night. There is a really nasty battle. The McCoys are not unprepared. They're fully armed. They're shooting out of the doors and windows and out of the attic of their house. And the Hatfields are, you know, shooting back and trying to light the house on fire. You know, smoke gets into the house. The the McCoys are kind of flushed out. Two of the McCoys are killed, one of them being one of Randall's daughters, Alifair, and a son named Calvin. Randall McCoy is eventually going to get away. He's able to get off into the woods being shot at. His wife does not get away. She is beaten severely, almost to death. And... In addition to that knife fight and shooting, the most savage event of the feud. Devil Lance, again, is not there. He was sick. It was led by bad Jim Vance, or some people call him Crazy Jim Vance, a Confederate raider during the war and one of the more violent members of the feud, as well as Cap Hatfield, Devil Lance's son, who had a real mean streak in him, too. Is this home invasion of the McCoy homestead the real turning point of this feud? This was a moment that was, I guess, beyond the pale, where the whole thing is going to escalate beyond the region. This is when you're going to get New York City taking notice of it and sending down reporters. You also have Perry Klein, who is all the more incensed over this moment, and and Randall and Sally going to Pikeville to get away from that border where they know they're in peril. Perry Klein deputizes a guy named Frank Phillips. Frank Phillips is a man of action. He's not going to wait very long before he takes law into his own hands. He will cross over the West Virginia-Kentucky border. You already have a Kentucky governor asking the West Virginia governor, please give us these guys. We need to resolve this. And you have the uh, militias of either state, their guards mobilizing, moving into the area to secure the border. I mean, it's potentially an opening of a new sort of civil war front. It's that bad. But again, they won't act against their own people. They know it's sort of political suicide. There's not an upside to it. And so bad Frank Phillips is tired of waiting. He is going to raid across the border. He arrests a bunch of Hatfields, takes them back to Pikeville, puts them in jail, ends up in a a battle called the, the Battle of Grapevine Creek. The Hatfields have gathered to protect their area, and they have a deputy sheriff with them. And of all the people that Frank's going to kill, he kills the deputy sheriff, who's not part of the family, but they're somewhat legitimizing the Hatfield posse. But he kills that guy in a very cold-blooded way. He wounds him, tracks him down, and shoots him, even when this guy's begging for mercy. Wow. What's the last major thing? Yeah, Randall McCoy is still surviving, believe it or not. The Hatfields are tried in Pikeville, and they are convicted of murder. All of them are given life sentences except for one. That is Cotton Top Mounts. He was a guy who had gone along on the raid and took the blame for killing Alifair. Alifair was Randall McCoy's daughter who was killed during the home invasion by the Hatfields. A lot of people think that it was actually Cap Hatfield who killed Alifair, but paid Cottontop and gave him a new saddle to take the blame. And Cottontop wasn't aware enough to know what that might result in. He was convicted of murder, given the death penalty, and there was going to be a big public execution. Now, public executions in Pike County had been outlawed for four decades. There were no more public hangings, those kinds of spectacles. But 
they wanted to send a big message here that this feud was over, namely for economic reasons, because they wanted the railroads to come in to be able to sell their coal and their timber more easily. It was on the edge of happening, but as long as it was a lawless place, the railroads didn't want to come in. So they wanted to send a big message. So what they did was they erected a, a gallows and put up a little fence with hillsides all around that you could see right over the fence so wow. that this big public spectacle would take place. There was a lot of fear that the Hatfields were going to come in and, and raid the event and save cotton top mounts. And thousands of people came to witness this execution in 1890. Devil Ants did not mount a raid. Frank Phillips was there uh, along with others. And really that execution of Cottontop Mounts put an end to the feud. Randall was a broken man at that point. Randall and his wife, Sally, who'd been beaten nearly to death, they lived in Pikeville. Randall would take over a ferry and kind of run it the rest of his life and die a, a tragic death, catch on fire in the fireplace. What? And, and burn to death. <gasps> yeah. Terrible. Yeah. And Devil Ants would go on to be born again, to renounce violence, and he would live to an old age. And he was wealthy. In the cemetery, there is a Italian marble statue on top of his tomb wow. there you know, that really signifies the wealth of the family. So obviously there's no winner or loser in this feud, but is there one family that comes out a little bit ahead of the other? I would say that the McCoy family was largely victimized in the feud. I, the Hatfields wouldn't agree with that. The lion's share of the deaths were on the McCoy side. So they lost in that manner. The Hatfields would go on to be very successful. A lot of doctors in the next generation, a governor out of the next generation. A really, really remarkable result for people this isolated in southern West Virginia. Both families, though, have rebounded amazingly. They were big, huge, robust families. So as you've seen more recently, certainly after the Gulf War, where you, you know, you have Hatfields and McCoys, both members of the descendants uh, of the feud fighting in, in the Gulf War. And the two families said, hey, you know, after 9-11, they got together. They really wanted to send the message that it didn't matter if somebody attacks America on American soil, the Hatfields and McCoys were going to come together. And they signed a peace treaty then because they knew they had to put together that united front for their sons who were fighting together in the Middle East. And I think that's truly remarkable. Right or wrong, we stand up for ourselves. We defend our families. We show immense loyalty. And I think that's what these families did. So this story is a part of American history, but it's also a really personal story about two families. I just wonder, you spoke with both of them. Did you have to kind of tread lightly here? There are points of honor here that they're very concerned about, and they want the history told the way they've heard it from their families, and they get upset if you challenge that sometimes. And so it's, it is a very still a very raw and personal matter. On the next episode of Wicked Words... You know, when I look at this case, I see all of the ways this girl was failed. She was failed by the media who didn't cover the case. She was failed by the systems in place that had her with very little opportunity and a way out. That She was failed by all of the shaming that happens in towns like this, at times like this. The ideas that women could only be these one things and anything outside of the box was somehow deviant. And I really feel that there were so many things that sort of came together you know, that really conspired against her and girls like her.
If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 